You're listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. There it was again, the sound of boulders rolling and grinding down the hill, crashing into his ears, sending shockwaves through his brain again and again. Mike rolled over in bed, pulling his pillow over his head, and pressed his face into the mattress. Jody, he whispered softly, then louder and angrier. Jody, you bastard! Why can't you stay here with me? That was a reading from Phantasm, the novelisation by Kate Coscarelli. That's the book. What's the breakfast? Well, in true book at breakfast fashion, I'm going to derail the conversation completely uh, and start talking about a different book. Um, so Dug- as you mentioned, Dug- 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 what now? <laughs> so as you mentioned, uh, that was a reading from a novelization, mm. um, which y- you know we love a good novelization. If you've listened to our uh, Doctor Who Rose episode, uh, and I guess the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was technically I a novelization yeah. of the radio show. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a debate to be had. Um, yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Phantasm is an indie horror film from 1979 written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Uh, And the novelised version was written by his mother, Kate Coscarelli. Uh, And before we go any further, I'd um, like to... Well, I was going to read an excerpt from Don Coscarelli's memoir, uh, True Indie, Life and Death in Filmmaking. Uh, But I thought, no, you know what? Let's hear from Don himself. So this is uh, an excerpt from a chapter in uh, True Indie, uh, a chapter on the making of the fourth Phantasm film, Phantasm Oblivion. When my daughter Chloe was just 10 years old, she had several memorable appearances portraying multiple hooded creatures in Oblivion. The creatures she played were crushed by a huge boulder in one scene and killed twice by Reggie and others. It was great fun for her, and I remember she enjoyed the attention from the cast and crew. Chloe ultimately pursued her passion for cooking and her love of animals to create a career for herself as a top vegan chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. It may be unseemly, but this horror filmmaker is a dedicated vegetarian, and I highly suggest you give it a try yourself. Now, until I read that book, I had no idea that Don Coscarelli, who I had, you know, admired uh, as a filmmaker, you know, pretty much all my life, uh, was also, uh, you know, not just a vegetarian, but somebody who's vegetarian for the animals. And that that really meant a lot to me to, to discover that. I had no idea about that until maybe a few days ago. Yeah. I knew his daughter was because I knew Chloe's cookbooks. Yeah. But I didn't know Don was as well. And there you have it, yeah. Obviously, it's something that's rather dear to our hearts. Yeah. So without wanting to sound preachy, it gives me a kind of whole deeper level of respect for a man that I already felt quite a lot of love for. I felt exactly the same way, yeah. Um, so this episode, uh, well, before I get down to that, so I was so delighted to hear that not only uh, Don was a vegetarian, but his daughter was a vegan chef, Chloe Coscarelli. I thought, well, what what better breakfast uh, 
than to keep it in the Coscarelli family. We've got a book written by Kate Coscarelli based on a film written by Don Coscarelli. So I've got a copy here of uh, Chloe's Vegan Italian Kitchen uh, and loads of sort of brilliantly veganized versions of the sort of Italian home cooking. Italian home cooking that uh, Chloe grew up with. Uh, so we've chosen her artichoke hash browns. Mm. It's the sort of, um, if I just read you the little description she gives here. Everyone loves hash browns. I mean, that's 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 fairly <laughs> universal, isn't it? And one, one of the ultimate breakfast foods. Everyone mm. loves hash browns. But I love adding artichokes, garlic and crushed red pepper. I think that's cayenne pepper, by the way, mm. uh, for some Italian flavour. I thought fantastic. So, uh, before before we get down to it, this uh, this is a bonus episode of sorts. This is this is the book at breakfast Halloween special, and it's a bonus episode because we, we're kind of cheating uh, a little bit. Uh, I have another podcast dedicated entirely uh, to the Phantasm franchise. You might have thought a book at breakfast was niche. You've heard nothing. <laughs> <laughs> until you've heard Morningside FM, which is really for the, the diehard Phantasm fans, and that's fans uh, spelled with a PH only. Um, but I thought, seen as that Mark and I were discussing the Phantasm novelization on Morningside FM, it felt only right to also share it with the listeners of A Book at Breakfast. So what you're about to hear uh, is a conversation we recorded for a completely different podcast, um, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. Um, and if you're listening to this because you're a Phantasm fan, don't forget to subscribe to Morningside FM. Uh, and also, carry on listening to A Book at Breakfast. Last month, uh, we discussed Chingle Hall by Zowie Swan. And ne- coming up next, we've got Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. So it's kind of a spooky trilogy. Yeah, now. a little spooky trilogy. <laughs> Although we'll be covering another spooky book in Christmas. Oh. It's a Christmas book with ghosts in it. I, I won't spoil it. I won't tell you when it's going to be. You'll never guess. So it's a spooky quadrilogy. Mm. Mm. Uh, but uh, before we uh, before we leave you with the, um, the conversation that Mark and I recorded for Morningside FM... Uh, this is it is a strange one, and it's this is why it's not uh, an episode of Book at Breakfast proper because every book that we've discovered, every book that we've discussed on this podcast have been books that we have like truly loved our entire lives, books that have kind of shaped us as people, and that I would pretty much stand by and say are great literature. Uh, you know, each in their own different ways. Uh, I couldn't say that in all. Uh, I, I dearly love Kate Coscarelli's Phantasm novelization, um, but I'm also a big fan of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. So if you get that reference, make of that what you will. Uh, and I asked Mark, uh, who enjoys the Phantasm films, possibly not as much as me. I don't know if that's physically possible. I was say. <laughs> um, but I asked him to read this book so we, we could record uh, this episode of Morningside. So we could record this episode of Morningside FM together. He very kindly agreed, but I gave him a bit of a warning. I said, it is slightly on the cheesy side, but I like to think it's full of charm. I said, but uh, here's a kind of visual aid uh, to to let you appreciate this book in the correct context. Uh, Because, you know, Mark and I were born in the 80s and therefore we grew up in the 90s and... As we mentioned in the the introductory episode of a book at breakfast, we loved Goosebumps books when we were little, and there um there was a website sadly inactive these days, but it were called it, it was called If It Were Stein, uh, and some uh, <laughs> some 
genius graphic illustrator has basically reimagined countless horror films uh, as if they were Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein. So this is um, the blurb for Goosebumps, Mayhem at the Mortuary. And the tagline is, the funeral, except it's uh, F-U-N in funeral is capitalized for fun. My God, that's The funeral clever. is about to begin. Beware the tall man. Living alone with his older brother in the small town of Morningside, 13-year-old Mike is plagued by vivid nightmares about the local mortuary and its mysterious owner, known only as the tall man. But when people start dropping dead all over town, Mike's worst fear becomes reality. With the help of his older brother and the local ice cream man, Mike sets out to uncover the truth about the Morningside murders. Who is the tall man? What are the strange dwarf creatures that roam the streets? And what is happening at the Morningside Mortuary? Reader beware, you're in for a scare. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing so well until the end. I think we should keep that. <laughs> Let's keep that in. I, I've got one uh, that that was beautiful. Um, I've got one minor gripe with with this though because I've seen Phantasm many many times. I've also read the Phantasm novelization, uh, and having seen the film and read the book, I would like to know who is the tall man. What are the strange dwarf creatures <laughs> that roam the streets? And what is happening at Morningside Mortuary? You've seen the film, Mark. Do, do you have any idea? <laughs> I don't think we get answers to any of those things. <laughs> well, while we enjoy Chloe Coscarelli's Artichoke Hash Browns, we will leave you with our discussion of Phantasm by Kate Coscarelli. Phantasm. Is it a nightmare? Whatever it is. If this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm wearing an unusual hat today. It's not the book at breakfast hat bedecked with pages from literature and sausages <laughs> tucked beneath the brim it's the morningside a... fm hat with a little antenna and a gravestone tucked oh, like beneath that. the brim yeah i was imagining uh sort of angus scrim's top hat in the uh in the, the animated photo in the antique store but no a, a gravestone hat yes brilliant so i'm sure the listeners can guess because often when I bring somebody onto this podcast, the answer is always the same. But I'm going to ask you anyway, even though I know the answer. Uh, how did you discover Phantasm and when? I discovered Phantasm from you, Chris. Shock horror. <laughs> I think we were about 13. We were. The perfect uh, age to yeah, discover it Phantasm. Is. It is, yeah. Um a friend of mine recently said, uh, referring to Stranger Things, actually, mm. um, that with teenagers plus horror, you can't go wrong. And oh, that's so true. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess your whole life, in one respect, is being shaken up and has become uncanny by puberty and yeah. by impending adulthood, mm. which in itself is a bit of a horror movie. So I think 13 is the perfect age to be discovering horror movies um but we were um 
we were at my mum's old house. Yes. Uh, yeah. And you'd come round and it was uh, one of those long summer days mm. that um, seemed to go on forever when you're that age. And I've always felt said, that Phantasm is a summer film. Even though it's yeah, a it is, film, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and you brought it round on a, a chunky VHS, yeah. which I imagine you were very proud to own. It was a pirate copy at that stage. Oh, I was it? Yeah, we rented it and pirated it. And I don't know if you remember, um, we, we had sort of two VH, uh, mm. VCRs with scart leads running from one to the other, and you could make a copy. But it had these sort of bizarre lines around the side of the screens <laughs> that looked uncannily like the original Doctor Who opening credits. You know, oh, the William Hartnell yes, sort of I swirling. Do remember that. Yeah. And, and it, what I only learned recently, well, I say recently, it was 10 years ago in that uh, Mark Gatiss, an adventure in uh, space and time. Um, they achieved that effect on Doctor Who by pointing the camera lens down its own um, monitor. Ah. So it's like visual feedback. And now I realise we were making a copy of a tape by plugging one VCR into another. So I think it's actually a a similar... Feedback. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, But anyway, sorry. Yeah, so I brought uh, a clunky uh, pirate VHS round to your mum's old house. And... um... You asked if I wanted to watch it. Um, we surely off... I didn't ask. Surely I just well, insisted. I think you did insist. <laughs> but we were off school and so was my younger sister. Oh, wow. Um, and I don't know if my memory of this is right or not. But I seem to remember that my sister wanted to watch it with us. Right. Um, and we were about 13. She's three years younger, so she would have been 10. And you said... Oh, I don't know. It might be a little bit scary. <laughs> and I think she did watch it with us and thought, what was scary about that? That was completely yeah. ridiculous. That sounds right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I can see how a 10-year-old would look at it and they would see scenes like I the, would have found it very the giant frightening fly yeah. um, well, and, and find it ridiculous. Oh, yeah. But so, at the same time, I found it really scary as a 13-year-old. Mm. And maybe what's scary at 13 isn't what's scary at 10. Maybe you almost need a sort of understanding of certain quite adult metaphysical con- concepts in order to find something scary that you might not have a handle on at 10. That's I a really good point. Years difference, but it's no, a big difference. And in terms of, especially phantasm, as has been remarked elsewhere in this podcast, you know, is a coming of age horror mm. with a thirteen-year-old protagonist. Um, and again, in terms of what you were saying before about adolescence being its own horror, there's a body horror element to yeah, it. Yeah, there is. But I think more significantly, like Kevin Lyons and I were discussing, it's about that penny drop moment of realizing that you're going to die one Mm. day and you know you don't have that kind of existential despair at 10 you barely have it at 13 but it's the creeping beginnings of it you know Ah, well i think i did have it at 13 well for Um, obvious personal reasons if you if you want to go into them it's interesting i picked up on this when i was listening to the uh the one with you and kevin oh yeah he said young people are carefree yeah and don't think about death until a certain age Mm. but because i'd had a brain tumor when i was 12 and i've been through surgery and radiotherapy and it my life sort of seemed like the pages of um actually this isn't a very on point reference anymore but it seemed like the pages of the mechanical animals booklets um, right, yeah and and for a while it seemed like uh 
its own kind of horror movie, which sounds very melodramatic, but it... No, I understand that. And even, like, your bizarre radiotherapy mask was something straight out of a horror film. Yes, that could have been in Phantasm. And your blood doll. You could picture somebody lying on the slab. Yes, and Henry, the blood doll. They give give kids... uh, Well, let you explain. Yeah. Certainly in this hospital I was in, um, there was an old lady worked there, and she made these... um, these strange white soft toys, uh, and I wouldn't call them teddy bears. They were kind of <laughs> man-shaped, but kind yeah. of a bit wonky, and they looked a bit like the Pillsbury Doughman. A stuffed doll yeah, with a blank white face. They were quite sinister. <laughs> a bit terrifying. And the face, it was the shape of the person, but the face was drawn on in pen, and I used to have to redraw it every few months because oh, it would I thought, fade. I thought it had come blank. I thought you just drew the face on. <laughs> no, it had the... <laughs> It had the face in hospital, and they were for um, showing children where the needle would go when they were taking blood, so they were wow. called blood dolls, yeah. which sounds like something from voodoo. I'm surprised we didn't start a band called the Blood Dolls. <laughs> be a good name, wouldn't it? Henry um, and the Blood Dolls. Interestingly, I was talking about Henry last week because I donated him to uh, a gallery, yes. and I want to write to them to ask where he got to. <laughs> How is he doing? Yes. <laughs> Has his yeah. face rubbed off yeah. yet? What was his fate? <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And I think that's one of the reasons we connected. I don't know mm. what, what my excuse was, but you were you were very, very serious and very maudlin. <laughs> uh, and so was I for absolutely no discernible reason. So we instantly became best friends. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I was talking to my mum about this yesterday. Um, and... I, you know, I think we were probably destined to meet yes. and become best friends anyway, but there was something about that experience of me being ill and then coming back to school. You were the only person that I felt on any kind of wavelength with. And I often say I felt like an adult in a child's mm, body because mm. my condition made me look like a child and I wasn't developing at that time. But because of what I've been through, I felt like an adult. And so I did have these sort of concepts of death. I yeah. had this idea that had this thing that had been found in me not been discovered, I would have been dead or irreparably brain damaged. And that was with me at a very young age. And maybe that's why I actually found Phantasm quite terrifying. Yeah. Arthur, sorry. Which seems that. in some respects maybe a bit laughable now when no, you look I at I things. Don't, I don't think so like at all. Because, you know, in, in the film, the character of Mike isn't ill but he has this this existential dread and mm. and he's you know he's aware of the fact that he's going to die one day and he's terrified of it so i completely understand how you it would resonate with you on mm. that level so I, I may be asking this too soon in the episode but it feels it feels natural uh, because i've asked uh, everybody else so far about what the tall man who they think the tall man is and what the tall man represents to them so as as a 12 year old boy who'd who'd had this this brush with his own mortality and then watching phantasm at 13 on my clunky pirated vhs (laughs) what was your reaction to the character of the tall man what did he mean to you i think my reaction then and my opinion now of what he is is a little bit different Mm. um i think when i was younger i saw him as the personification of death Mm. um 
and everything about him was cold and creaky and the way he walked it was like his yeah. limbs didn't quite bend mm. and you imagine that if he did have to bend his knee it would bend with a creak yeah and yet he was supernaturally strong and he could lift this coffin over his shoulders um and he seemed purely the thing that would uh, hasten us towards the grave um probably before our time uh, for whatever sinister purpose uh he wanted but in terms of making a kind of informed opinion about him now with time to reflect on this mm. in adulthood 23 years yeah. of reflection well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I now think he is as much sex as he is death and oh, that how interesting like a really strange thing to say because you don't look at Angus Scrim as the tall man and think, oh, whoa, that character is pure sex. No, but you look at his alter ego mm. and perhaps think that. Um, next episode, I'm going to be chatting with Zoe Swan mm. again. She's coming back to talk about phantasm through a feminist lens. Mm. And yeah, I, spoiler alert, we've already recorded that episode, so I may <laughs> allude to some of the things we say. And that's one of the things we talk about, that that motif of, of sex and death. Mm. Uh, but it's interesting you say that, um, because, again, you know, I've, I've spoken to Mary Wilde uh, and Kevin Lyons about the tall man, and we've talked about the tall man as the personification of death. And, uh, you know, Mary had that, that great point about him being, you know, the antithesis of sex. Uh, and and how you know Reggie represents the the, the life force in opposition to uh, um, the tall man's death drive. But I've actually uh, already had some listener feedback mm. uh, for some people saying, you know, that's not true for everyone. Uh, some people find the tall man very attractive, Ooh, and nice. um, in that sort of Dracula vein, you know, mm. the kind of the dark, seductive figure. Um, so it's really interesting that you should say that. Well. I think it was uh, you that put across the point a while ago, uh, before this podcast was even a twinkle in your eye, <laughs> that um, a lot of the themes of phantasm are once uh, you sort of hit puberty, mm. you realise that your body is irrevocably changing. Yes. Yeah. And you start to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to be here forever. Mm. Um, and I was thinking that the tall man and the Lady of Lavender are perhaps equals. And our film perception is very much on the tall man's side because you only get yeah. a few fleeting glimpses of the Lady in Lavender. Yeah. Whereas the majority of the time that that kind of character, that double mm. god, goddess, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call yeah. it, is in it, we're seeing the tall man. But there's a sort of, in my head now, there's a narrative that happens off screen where the lady in Lavender is going around creating just as much havoc as the tall man. Yeah. And she's going around seducing people and bringing them out of childhood oh, into yeah. their sexual awakenings and puberty to and start the journey. Setting them on the path of death. death. Yes. So to me, the tall man and the lady of Lavender. Sort of interchangeable. Are the constant companion that accompanies us once we hit puberty and we start to come to terms with the fact that we're not going to be here forever. And in a weird way to take this a little bit further, they're a little bit like in the Philip Pullman books, mm. the way uh, everyone has uh, an animal that accompanies them. And when they're, they're a child, they're it soul, changes yeah. to kind of fit whatever they need at yeah. the moment. But when they hit puberty and sexual awakening, their demon, their familiar, their mm, animal mm. that accompanies them 
sets and it becomes one set thing. They're on this irrevocable path. Yeah. Wow. And that's, yeah. They're on the pathway towards uh, from sexual maturity to, to death. death. Wow. What a, what a brilliant interpretation. I love it. Mm. The tall man and the lady in lavender are love, love sisters. Yes. <laughs> now that might not make sense to you, but fear not. Uh, all will be explained. Uh, now, of course, we are ostensibly here to talk about the phantasm novelization. Mm. Uh, and as I alluded to before, uh, both Mark and I are huge fans of, of Doctor Who. Um, so the word novelization is... Uh, gets us excited just <laughs> even we're english so we should spell it with an s but it's one of those words where you really want to put the z in because it's like a, like, <laughs> like a ray gun like something's been novelized yes. oh, <laughs> by, like by the novelizer <laughs> uh, and it was quite common uh in certainly in the 70s uh for films and sometimes tv serials to be novelized because if people miss them at the cinema or when they're on tv it was harder to, to see them again you know with um before streaming and even especially if you're, if you're in a different country videos could be hard to get hold of and sometimes even if you could get a vhs it would be uh you know a censored version or a cut version and um uh prior to making phantasm i don't know if this is connected but in my head it is prior to making phantasm don made a film called kenny and company which, funnily enough, was also a sort of coming-of-age film, but in a very different way to Phantasm. And uh, one of one of the actors, one of the child actors in that film was a Michael Baldwin, who went on to play Mike in Phantasm. Um, and I don't know, I don't think the film did particularly well uh, in the US, but it was really big in Japan. Oh, right, I um, know that. Yeah, and I think there's a great bit in Don's uh, memoir where he talks about, he was only like, you know, 23 or something ridiculous, and he had to chaperone all these children basically on this promotional tour of japan one of whom was a michael baldwin so i think you know they've, they've had a, a a firm bond for for many many years um but apparently he was a real heartthrob over there the the japanese teenage hey, girls. Baldwin, yeah no no michael um the yeah the uh, teenage japanese girls and presumably boys all loved him oh. um so i believe phantasm was a big hit over there too because right. he's like oh it's the new a michael baldwin film um and so Don's mother, uh, Kate Coscarelli, that's her, her, her pen name, her real name, Shirley, um, she went on to become an incredibly successful romance novelist. And I think that was a, a passion she'd always had writing, but had never got round to it. And, you know, we've talked elsewhere on the podcast, I think, about how... Uh, Kate Coscarelli was very much the unsung hero of the of the especially that original Phantasm film. She did so much. She did sort of hair and and makeup and catering and costumes. Um, you know, all under different uh, pseudonyms uh, on the credits. Uh, so I I don't know how this novelization came about, but because she'd always had this desire to be a writer, she offered to to write a novelized version of Phantasm. Uh, and I don't know if it was intended for a world a worldwide release, uh, but for a very long time it was only available as a translated version in Japan. <laughs> uh, it wasn't published in English until two thousand and two. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, I remember discovering the internet when, when you know most people didn't have computers at home when we were teenagers or if they did they didn't have a modem it wasn't easy to get online i remember i used to go to the local library and pay a pound 
for half an hour online and go on phantasm.com. Uh, and it was so exciting, that website back in those days. You probably, I, I probably showed it you at the time. I remember even printing off some of the web, web pages. I think and you the, showed me the printout. Yeah, and there was a whole section called the Tall Man's Mausoleum. Mm. Uh, and the, the wallpaper on, on that screen was like the Morningside marble. Uh, and there were all, there was stuff about the cars on there. I downloaded instructions on how to embalm a corpse, which is <laughs> what every 13-year-old boy should be doing. Um and on there, they posted a little article about this novelization. Uh, and there was there was a sample of it on there as well. And um, and again, Kevin and I in the, in the last episode talked about the fact that the you know, original cut of Phantasm was, was three hours long and it was trimmed down. And again, this was way before DVDs or YouTube or anything like that. So I was yet to see a single deleted scene from Phantasm. And for me, as a young fan who was just obsessed with this film, you know, every frame of it was was almost like sort of a hallucinogenic drug to me. I was uh, the idea that there was more phantasm out there was was it was incredible. It was so magical and yet so tantalizing. And so they posted the first few chapters of this novelization online. And I think the web page is even still live. The link wow. to it on the phantasm site has long gone. But the, the, the sample is still out there, and I remember it so vividly. It was sort of bright, bold, white text against a, a jet black background. And I remember reading it, and and there was more. There was more information, more backstory to the characters, and I was so intrigued by by this novel. Uh, but it wasn't available anywhere. And then in later years, I realised that... Um, there had only been 500 copies printed of the English translation and it'd come out in 2002 and they were all sort of individually numbered and wow. signed by Don. Uh, and I found one on eBay in about 2008 for £100. <laughs> and I thought, I can't pay £100 for a book. That's ridiculous. Uh, and it went. And then the next time I saw it on eBay was on US eBay and it was for seven hundred dollars, oh <laughs> and I bitterly regretted not buying the hundred pound one yeah. when I had the chance. Um, and so for me, this this book was kind of like a holy grail. Um, not necessarily because I hope this doesn't sound unkind. That there's a, there's an afterword in the uh, in the two thousand and two English reprint. Or print, I suppose, an afterword by Stephen uh, Romero, who says that you know him and Don put this book together, uh, and Kate Coscarelli sadly passed away in 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, having enjoyed immense success as an author, uh, but they said if she were alive today, you know, this was the first book she wrote, and I think she she developed her style a lot. She learnt a lot um and if she were still alive today there's no doubt that she'd want to go through and revise it and rewrite certain bits and 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 they said we've tidied it up a little bit but we thought we didn't want to rewrite it we want to just almost you know preserve it as it was as a kind of curio and it's it's gorgeous it's even printed in the style uh of a sort of 70s pulp paperback novel like you you would have got at the time uh because Many, many, many years later, I finally managed to get hold of a copy. Um, and, 
you know, it was literally 23 years from reading those sample <laughs> chapters and wanting to know what happened next. Obviously, I know what happened next. I've seen the film. I've seen the film many, many times. <laughs> As I say, it's, you know, with the best will in the world, it's not great literature. It's not the best written book in the world. But that, for me, that wasn't the appeal. The appeal was that it was extra phantasm. I could read this book and know more about the Pearson brothers and know more about the town that they lived in and maybe even know more about the tall man. And, you know, as I say, this book, it really was a kind of holy grail, an obsession. I would scour... uh, the internet endlessly trying to find copies of it or and when i'd given up trying to actually buy a copy i was trying to find any information about it i could on sort of obscure blog posts and and reviews and uh and then once i saw this very very strange book on ebay uh and it said it was a, a novel and it said phantasm one and two but there was there was there was no information accompanying it, and I, I even uh, took a screenshot of it and and tweeted Don Coscarelli and said, "What is this? Is it real? Should I buy it?" It was about you know twenty dollars or something, but I didn't really know what it was. Uh, and then my very good friend Zowie Swan, who was with me uh, for episode two, talking about phantasm and funerals, uh, bought it for me for Christmas one year, and it turns out it's a bootleg Russian translation of Kate Coscarelli's phantasm novelization published side by side with a, a novelization in Russian of Phantasm 2 by a mystery author. Um, so it was kind of tantalizing because on the one hand, I had in my hands the phantasm novelization that I'd been searching for for two decades, but it was in a language I couldn't read. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous I'm, book. I'm holding it now and... In many ways, this is one of my favourite things about the Phantasm franchise. Oh, me too. The artwork on the cover, which depicts two of the uh, The dwarves, dwarves, is so creepy, but also a little bit goosebumps. Very goosebumps, yeah. And it's got this amazing picture in the inner sleeve of the red planet with one of the dwarves crawling on its yeah, belly. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be uh, the, the scene from Phantasm 2 mm. where where Reggie falls through the fork and it's crawling up to his face. Mm. But it's, it's gorgeous. And it's also got these wonderful illustrations yeah, sort of black and white, almost yeah, and there's that, you've just opened it on the title page. I mean, I assume it's the title page. I can't understand a word of what's printed there. Well, the fact it's written in Russian makes yeah. it seem like this kind of holy artifact. It's almost a bit like a kind of treasure that Indiana Jones would find. Very much so. It feels some, like occulting. it could have been buried under the sand yeah, in the desert. Yeah. And but that's a strange script that if only you could speak the language, exactly, yeah, we, you would draw up some strange incantation. Yeah, we, we need some sort of Rosetta Stone yeah. or, you know, a Russian translator. But that, that just to go back to that title page that you had open, there's a picture there of presumably the tall man. It looks like <laughs> Angus Scrim, uh, but he's wearing a top hat uh, and he has a kind of almost zombified face mm. and it really reminds me there there was a video board game that i was obsessed with in the in the early 90s called atmosphere do you remember uh, it? Probably, uh, i'm think sure we played it together everyone knows atmosphere, yeah, yeah. surely yeah. Uh, if you're we listening did play it together yeah, yeah if you're listening uh, in australia it was i think it's actually an australian game it was called nightmare in australia and phantasm of course was called the never dead <laughs> Everything, everything's different in australia <laughs> which i always find endlessly intriguing but yeah uh, the, the second atmosphere game was hosted by the the zombie baron samdi and he was this sort of guy in zombie makeup with sort of mad wisps of gray hair and a top hat and that and it's like a mashup of angus scrim and baron samdi and what year would that game have come out 
because this was oh, 1993. 93. So you know I wonder what? if the person that did this was inspired by yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they couldn't they couldn't find an image of the tall man, so they uh, they got atmosphere instead. And there is an author's name on the spine in Russian. <laughs> there it was, is. It says M Onayapek, and it's very, even so, even the title you can tell that it says phantasm. Mm. Uh, there's a sort of what looks like a P and mm. A H T A a backwards three, which presumably is a sort of uh, you know a Russian stylized S. M. Would you post a picture of this cover? I will, on yeah. On the social media things, yeah. because I think it has to be seen, it has to be beheld. Yeah, but at the same time, I even like the idea that that we're describing this wholly improbable and bizarre thing, because it's sort of like, we, we know that we've got in front of us a phantasm novelization, but it may as well be on the red planet as far as we're concerned because yeah. we can't read it. So uh, there's possibly even an extra layer of magic going on in the listeners' heads at the moment, just trying to imagine. Well, that's true. And I mean, it doesn't even have a publisher's details or no. a barcode on the back. It looks like it's homemade. And for some reason, <laughs> there's a picture of Jesus Christ being the crucifixion on the back. What does that mean? <laughs> I almost wonder if, if this was some sort of like labour of love for somebody, mm. they just kind of had this artwork lying around that they'd done and thought, well, that will tie in. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it, you think when you die, you come to heaven? Yeah, yeah the crucifixion. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are crucifixes in Phantasm. Why not? I'd love uh, to meet the person that did this. I think it is a beautiful <laughs> thing. I love it. Uh, you know what? Maybe it was Kate Coscarelli. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, so I was so... Da- you know, it was, it was kind of like having... Uh, a gold coin in the lining of your jacket pocket that you know is there, but you can't get into, you can feel it, but you can't get it out. So on the one hand, magical, but on the other, immensely frustrating. <laughs> I'm holding the phantasm novelization that I've wanted since I was 13, but I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, come on, this is the future. There must be a way. Uh, so I downloaded an, a Google Translator app it's quite remarkable, really. You hold your phone camera, you set the language, you hold your phone camera over the page, and not only does it give you a translation, but it's really bizarre. It's like it sort of takes a picture, but you see the words change before your eyes. It's it's like something uh, out of phantasm, you know, like the <laughs> that we mentioned before, the, the the animated picture in the antique store. It sounds like something out of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It does, it does actually, yeah, yeah, sort of a visual Babelfish. Uh, now, this is not the ideal way to translate a novel. In fact, some might say it's the very worst way to translate a novel <laughs> relying on software. Um, but I didn't have uh, a Russian translator to hand. Uh, if anyone's willing to <laughs> send us a message and I'll send you some screenshots. Um, but what is... So I think it's safe to say, it's fair to say that the, the, the version that we got from Google Translate is slightly bizarre. And that's okay because things are always lost in translation. But I suspect, because this was published in 1993 in Russia. Um, and I'm saying that. Do we even know that it was published in Russia? It says well, something. we don't. No. I mean, do we know for sure this is Russian script? Well, I, be yeah, another... I, I, I set the Translate software to Russian uh, and, okay. it, and it identified it. So I feel yeah. vaguely confident it's Russian. Um, but as I say, this was published in 1993. 
uh, and an English version of this novel wasn't officially published until 2002. So I think that the Russian version of this book has been translated from Japanese and then we've used Google Translate software <laughs> to translate it back into English. So I'm going to crack open a cold doseki while Mark reads you um, the opening section of what may or may not be Kate Coscarelli's phantasm novelization. Life and death always walk side by side. They are like love-love sisters. No matter how much each of them looks down on her partner, vainly declaring, the whole world is me. There is no life without death. There is no death. And they were created as a couple to leave without life to nudge each other. Light and darkness, dream and reality, reality, etc., are also inseparable. The list is endless. And, as a vivid confirmation of this, in the old cemetery of a little-known earlier, I would say forgotten by God, town, under the bright name of Morningside, perhaps the most vital of life scenes took place. Since ancient times, people have put the words love and life side by side, but the moment of intimacy of love, its idea and culmination, even if the feeling takes a few minutes, and having received satisfaction, the man and woman will part forever. Tommy was sure that his love was real. Flashing suddenly at the sight of the stranger, she turned out to be so strong that he could not believe in her near end. Well, he thought, following his chosen one, at first sight. Their relationship developed quite rapidly. From the moment of their meeting, not even an hour had passed when both were on the ground, and the silent trees listened to the heavy but sweet groans for the place where eternal rest should have reigned. Eternal rest should have reigned. Mm. It's bizarre, but it's really quite beautiful. I find it quite beautiful. And eerie. And uh, again, you can tell certain things have been somewhat lost in translation and certain sentences maybe end more abruptly than they should. And there was that line, uh, there is no life without death there is no death. Do you think that should have said there is no death without life? Because that kind of harkens back to what you were saying about the Lady in Lavender, mm. sort of the idea that she is seducing people because she, you know, on the one hand in, in the sort of death and the maiden sense of, of, of their duality she is is the maiden, she's, she's life, she's fertility, but like you say she's just the other side of the coin that sets them on the path towards their inevitable demise. You know, there is no death without life. I always wonder, with this scene with Tommy, if you were to read it very literally and kind of go with my interpretation about the duality of the tall man and the lady in lavender, is Tommy losing his virginity in this scene? I mean, yeah. actually, I should probably elucidate because I'm not entirely sure it's clear from what I just read that that's what's happening. <laughs> but that's in a very this, good point. In this, in this scene... <laughs> we assume that's the opening scene of the movie. Yeah. In this scene, at the beginning of the movie, at the beginning of Kate Coscarelli's um, English novelization, mm. it starts with um, Jodie and Reggie's friend Tommy being led into a graveyard to have sex with this mysterious lady in Lavender. So that, I think, is what's being described in this translation of the translation of the translation. Yeah. So is Tommy having his virginity taken by the Lady of Lavender 
falling from grace and childhood and meeting his death all as one? Is it a summation of the entire journey of puberty to adulthood to death crystallized in one scene? That is so poignant and beautiful and and worthy of that very, very poetic uh, interpretation of Phantasm's opening scene. and I'm not saying that it isn't a direct translation of Kate Coscarelli's novel, mm. because, you know, it's been through many processes, we assume. It's gone from English to Japanese, from Japanese to Russian, and then Russian back to English via Google Translate software. But the um, the actual opening chapter of Kate Coscarelli's phantasm novelization bears very little resemblance <laughs> to the, the, the floral... Um, almost introspective nature of uh, whatever you just read. Um, Is it fair to mention Garth Marenghi? Garth Marenghi is one of the few authors who who has written more books than he's read. Uh, But one of the books, quite possibly the only book Garth Marenghi (laughs) has ever read, uh, is Phantasm by Kate Coscarelli. And chapter one uh, goes like this. Tommy Masterson couldn't believe his look. He'd stopped in the Dunes Cantina for a beer, and there was this babe sitting at the bar. She had long blonde hair and a pair of tits that would knock your eyes out. She kept looking his way. There was no question she wanted to talk. God, he murmured to her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll try again. I, I was at absolute pains to read all my bit with a straight face. So. <laughs> God, he murmured to himself. That was less than an hour ago. And here he was, flat on his back, with that girl half out of her lavender dress, grinding away on top of him. He looked up at the girl, writhing and gasping as she waved those gorgeous knockers in his face. (laughs) Sorry. And suddenly, he could retain his passion no longer. As he... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) God, do it. It's uh, appropriately enough, it's put us back in the mindset of being 13-year-old boys. As he came, his tender organ stretching and straining inside that strange and marvellous cunt, she too seemed to reach peak and descend. Lying quietly on the grass at Morningside, where she had held him, Tommy closed his eyes in contentment. You were great, baby, he murmured, as the limpness spread throughout him. The woman, whose painted face and glittering eyes showed no lessening of tension, waited only a moment, then drew a knife from somewhere behind her and lifted it above him. Quickly, she sank it, as hard and fast into his heart as he had plunged his body into hers. And then a hell beast ate them. <laughs> Sorry, that for anyone who doesn't know, that was a reference to uh, an English comedy show called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place uh, about a horror author more of which are none yeah hopefully yeah Mm. certainly on a book at breakfast but Mm. let's not uh let's not uh madness. yeah (laughs) um i I think i prefer my version yeah two readings (laughs) uh and another thing about the translated version uh that i find really sinister again i think not deliberately so it's just a, a consequence of a very literal translation and again something being lost in translation but the tall man is referred to as long mm. just capital l like not even the long man just long mm. 
which is really quite horrible. <laughs> it makes me think of the Slender Man. The uh, exactly, yeah. Have we talked about the Slender Man? We haven't. No, no. Oh, interesting. Right. And that idea well, of that was. Do we need to give any context? There? I'm sure everyone knows what Slender Man is, and I'm sure everybody. I'm sure everybody who's listening to a Phantasm podcast knows mm. that the um, the artist, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but um, the person who actually invented Slenderman has acknowledged that he based the design of this, you know, this sinister, tall, lanky being in a, in a black suit and black tie on the tall man. Mm, I didn't know Even that. the name, the Slenderman, the tall man. Mm. So skipping forward uh, to the end uh, of the, the Russian bootleg translated version uh this is the scene you know right at the end after mike has has woken to find it was all a dream and reggie's told him to go and get his gear together because they're going to leave when the sun comes up so mike's gone up to his bedroom i don't need to explain this you know the scene i'm talking about (laughs) mike peered and his heart skipped a beat on the opposite wall just behind him was a jacket the black and above him a human face gleamed long's face here it says maya's legs gave way i think that might be a glitch in the software mm-hmm. i think it should be mike's legs gave way he did not understand how he managed to turn his back to the closet and with this unforgotten talk fall the long man looked him straight in the eyes with a grin sleep boy a lying voice mike backed away His back touched the cabinet door. That's it. Now he will wake up or... The clinking of glass drowned out the strumming of a distant guitar. A terrible, inhuman voice thundered. Your own mirror shattered, and because of it they leaned out, grabbing the numb mic by the shoulders and throat, slimy brown hands of dwarves. Sleep and Java always walk next to each other. End of the first book. What does sleep in Java always walk next to each other? I don't it's Lynchian. Know. It's so Lynch. You yeah. can imagine that being said backwards in the red room. The giant saying. Yeah. Or even just that, you know, uh, we are like the dreamer that lives inside a dream, <laughs> you know. Um, but th- even that sleep in Java, it's Jawa, that's me. <laughs> a Freudian slip there about the uh, Star Wars similarities. Um that sleep and Java always walk next to each other. It reminds me of of the the section you read from the opening about was it life and and death mm. walking side by side. Bizarre. What what does he mean by Java? I mean, I the know. obvious thought is coffee. Yeah, but is it like stimulants and 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 weariness? It's interesting because uh, Mike is kind of on the cusp between dreaming. Yeah. And, you know, is he still dreaming? Is this real? It's so bizarre. I also love the way uh, it says something like your mirror shatters yeah. and the uncanniness of that. You yeah. kind of, you read it and you're sat in front of the mirror. Yeah. And I expected the mirror to shatter because reading something <laughs> in the second person you never get. And it makes it really spooky. It's yeah. cool. And I think it's just a grammatical slip yes, in the software. Is, but yeah. you're right. It gives it this, funnily enough, this nightmarish quality, mm. which is so phantasm. And that idea, you know, we talked about the appeal to me of this of this lost novelization being that it contained extra scenes that i didn't know about but you know it it, it, so everybody agrees even don agrees that the the three-hour phantasm cut didn't work (laughs) and i think that you know not only did trimming a lot of those extra scenes 
shift the focus just to be about the relationship between these two brothers which is the heart of the film but it also removes a lot of context and as mm. we've as we've discussed uh, previously on the podcast that it kind of throws narrative structure out of the window but that only adds to the the disjointed surrealist charm of it i think when i was a kid and we first watched it I didn't even notice that the narrative structure was all over the place because I did that thing that I think you do when you're a kid. You fill in the blanks, you don't do you? Fill so imaginative. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't that different to a lot of the dreams I'd had when I was younger and because the illness had night terrors. So I was kind of familiar with a sort of dream logic. And if it had been sold to me in such a way that um, if if you'd said oh, this makes no sense, it's all over the place, it's like a work of art more than a movie, I probably would have thought, what is this bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> but to actually not question it and just take it in for what it was, I just filled in the blanks subconsciously without yeah. kind of questioning it. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of glad I had no context for it. Yeah, I think that's the best way to appreciate mm. it. But just going back to those extra scenes, now... Mm. Nowadays, on most of the DVD and Blu-ray releases, you can watch uh, many of the deleted scenes. And even on YouTube, there's some stuff that isn't on the DVDs. Um, a famous scene of um, uh, Jody getting Mike drunk uh, and and they, they take him to Reggie's ice cream parlor where Reggie's playing guitar on the stage and they lay him out unconscious and just cover cover young mike in ice cream it's <laughs> it's really sweet and funny and silly and it does it, you know they were right to cut out those scenes but it's wonderful to see them especially for someone like me who just like it, it's almost like methadone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but of course and then everybody knows this now but because there was all this extra footage they ended up using so much of it in oblivion mm. but nevertheless there is a lot of stuff in the novel that i think it was right not to have it in the film but for the diehard, it, it's amazing just mm. to immerse yourself in that world and the lives of the Pearson brothers. So I've I've tried to come up with a sort of uh, not necessarily definitive, but a list here of little wonderful extra things that we get from the novelization ah. and, and therefore from the original screenplay. If there even was a screenplay for Phantasm, it was so, <laughs> you know, ad hoc the, the way it was made at weekends over, you know, two years so this could be a little treasure trove for people because not everyone still will have access to this exactly. novel. Exactly, so yeah. And this there is... might be people tuning into this that want to hear all these little... I uh, hope so, because this is the bits. stuff that I was desperate for and I thought, I wish someone would write a blog post or do a podcast explaining exactly what's in the novelization that I can't get hold of. Um, so first off, after the, uh, the opening... Uh, graveyard sex scene y you can tell that uh, Kate went on to be a romance novelist <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we get uh, a scene that isn't in the film at all it's pre-funeral because of course in the, in the movie we go straight from Tommy's murder to uh, funeral. hell of a way to end a trio mm. um, and it's it's what's interesting straight away at the start of chapter 2 we get the Cuda screeched down the main street of China Grove and came to a stop in front of the bank China Grove. The town is called mm. China Grove. For years, I thought the town was called Morningside. Yeah, I've always assumed it was called Morningside. And even in, in just to confuse things even more, in Phantasm 2, when we begin with Mike in the asylum, the sign outside says Morningside Asylum. <laughs> so it must be a place. Mm. Perhaps it's a, it's a, a, a 
part of the town known as Morningside. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think Morningside, at least going back to that original film, is literally just the name of the funeral parlour. But I love that, China Grove. There's that line after um, they've got Tommy, uh, Dwarf Tommy, in, in the car, and they ring Reggie to come and get them. And he says, uh, we're in Colton, in the groves. Mm. And I don't know why, but that always gave me chills. And I think because of the way it's shot, I think because it was probably filmed in a garage, but <laughs> I think they're on a set and there's just this, you can see the car, the headlights of the car and the the payphone that they're at. But other than that, there's just sort of infinite blackness. Again, a perfect example of, sort of the serendipity of Phantasm, that it should be bad, but it just looks gorgeous and bizarre and kind of terrifying. And, and the fact that they're in the groves. It sounds like a Lana Del Rey lyric. It really does, doesn't it? Or again, back to Lynch, it makes me think of in the sycamore trees. Mm. I don't know why. So the fact that the, the town is called China Grove. I love that. Also, China Grove, to me, makes me think of uh, a porcelain model, like literally made of China. Evocative. And so with yeah. the dreamlike sort of nature of the whole thing you're watching, the fact that you're in a China Grove, you're in a model, you're in something that's not quite real. You're yeah, not standing yeah, yeah. amongst actual a- buildings and bricks and mortar. Kind of works for me. Yeah. I don't know if I'm taking a leap there. But... I think you've got to take many leaps with Phantasm. Mm. And, and even in, you know, in, the, in the antique store, yeah. Uh, they have, I think, like Chinese dragons and puzzle boxes and things. It's, I don't know, I'm, I'm overthinking it, but that, that's the fun of it, isn't it? Uh, so he's pulled up the car to go into the bank. Uh, and then we realise that, uh, unlikely though it seems from the sitting here at midnight, drinking Dos Equis on the porch, Jody, that we know from the film, uh, Jody Pearson actually owns a bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a surprise. Yeah, even though it's run effectively uh by mr norby the, the bank manager uh and uh and, and we learn i think that mike and jody's parents were quite well off because their dad owned the local bank and then when when their parents died it was left to them so it kind of explains how the pearson brothers are able to live without either of them seeming to have a job yeah i always wonder how they had a housekeeper yeah. as well even <laughs> though in the film i didn't realize for decades that she was the housekeeper. i had no idea who myrtle was yeah. with no context but in the book she features more. again yeah it explains who myrtle is in the book um um but yeah they've got a housekeeper they've got a really big house they've got an incredibly fancy car um and but that kind of ties into another aspect of phantasm that a lot of people don't talk about and it's almost it feels almost taboo to say it because every time we talk about phantasm we rightly talk about loss and grief and and fear of mortality and mike's terror that that jody will leave and, and that is right but in terms of the loss and the grief i'm not saying mike isn't grieving his parents but there's something of a young boy's fantasy about it. Mm. It makes me think of something like Home Alone or Big and that idea you're a young boy and suddenly your parents aren't around anymore and you can do whatever you like. Mm. And of course this is all a teenage boy's dream because he doesn't... I know it, it, it's set in summer, so maybe there's that line that Reggie says the kids have just got out of summer school. Maybe it's the summer holidays, but Mike doesn't seem to go to school. Mm. He's got a motorbike. <laughs> He's allowed to drive a muscle car. He drinks beer. He does whatever he want and wants and goes wherever he wants and he hangs out with his cool older brother who plays guitar in a band i mean that's the dream and and you know the the real existential dread for mike is i think is the fear that that jody is going to leave him mm. uh but then of course i and this is something i've always wondered now is this lazy writing uh because mike's parents died in a car crash 
But then at the end, when you find out that Jody is dead, we're told he also died in a car crash. Mm. So does everybody in China Grove drive recklessly? <laughs> or did Jody and his mum and dad all die in a car the same car accident mm. when Mike wasn't there? And Mike's dream, you know, in, in the real world, Mike's an orphan and Reggie's taking care of him, like at the end of the film. But in his dreams, his fantasy is that his brother survived mm, and he is, is is the caretaker. And uh, just going back to episode one, um, I asked Mary Wilde to join me to discuss the philosophy of phantasm because of a wonderful segment she had uh, on the uh, Evolution of Horror podcast. And you listened to that at the same time as I did. Mm. And you sent me a message. You said, oh, my God, th- this this quote of Mary's, it really struck a chord with me. And I think it explains why phantasm means so much to so many people and especially kind of young boys who are the age we were when we watched it. Kids are innately hardwired to attach themselves to caretakers, which is critical to the ability to form interpersonal relationships later in life. Whether real or perceived, childhood abandonment interferes with forming attachments and negatively impacts future relationships. Usually, perceived abandonment happens before children are old enough to understand that they are not responsible for others' actions. In that case, children often falsely believe that they are flawed, unlovable, and responsible for the caretaker's absence. And what really struck me, and in many ways, this was the catalyst for making me want to start this podcast and have ridiculously long and in-depth conversations about phantasm. And I can't believe I didn't even mention this in my conversation with Mary in episode one. But if you discount Tommy's death in the first scene, which isn't witnessed by anyone. Yeah, that's the catalyst that starts Mike's discovery of of what's going on at Morningside. Uh, But the first person that Mike sees murdered in front of him is the caretaker. Oh, yes. And in that sort of uh, Twin Peaks kind of way, where you have these archetypal characters like the fireman and the woodsman. I thought, again, it's that serendipitous genius almost or profundity and I'm not saying that was deliberate but you've got you know Don Coscarelli this young man writing this horror film with these themes of mortality and uh, with this orphan protagonist and and that that idea that it's hardwired in in us to fear the death of our caretakers Mm. and that the first person the, the tall man, I know it's the sphere, but, you know, the sphere is the servant of the tall man. The tall man takes away the caretaker and Mike has to watch him die and then flee from this Grim mm. Reaper figure. I just think that's fantastic. Um, but, yeah, so I always wondered about, is it Mike's fantasy about having a caretaker figure, but it, it not being the parent figure because again like I discussed with Mary, the tall man is kind of, he's the patriarchy, he's the man, whereas Jody is He's a rock and roll musician. He's Mm. sticking it to the man. But that was one of the things I thought was quite sad about the book was that Mike doesn't like the fact that Jodie is a a musician. I don't know if you remember that scene. Um, It's the the, the gorgeous uh, sitting here at midnight scene on the porch where, you know, Reg and Jodie are strumming their guitars. And it's it's told from Mike's point of view. He's in his bedroom and he says, oh, he hates it when Jodie's strumming guitar. That kind of jarred at me. I know. Because I I find that scene so cozy and comforting and warm. Yeah. Uh, kind of like, whoa, what are you doing? You, you're messing up the I classics. I know, I know. <laughs> but it makes complete sense because yeah. that music, you know, I've said elsewhere that 
Mike fears that sex is the thing that will take Jodie away. But in a more immediate sense, you know, Jodie's it's been those out bloody Rolling Stones. Yeah, he's been out rodeoing for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Which again, I think I always inferred from the fact that he wears the Rolling Stones T-shirt mm. and the the friend of theirs says, "Oh, you know, I hear you've been out on the road." But I think it's only in the novelization that it actually confirms that he was a roadie for the Rolling Stones, wasn't it? I think the Rolling Stones, as bands go as well, were one of the sort of countercultural acts that were kind of seen as being um, somehow in league with devil worship. And, yeah, you know, sympathy for the devil. Sympathy for the devil, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if... Um, you know, they're sort of the representation oh. of that kind of, that little death as well. Yeah, and again, like, you know, China Grove is this idyllic, uh, it makes me think of that monkey song, Pleasant Valley Sunday. Mm. It's small town America, and the Rolling Stones are not that. No. Well, they weren't, anyway. But uh, just to go on for a tangent, uh, that was another thing. I've talked about the many reasons this film appealed to me and still continues to appeal all these decades later. But another thing that, that really, you know, struck with me when I first watched it was that that the characters in it you know Reggie Mike and Jody they're all right not so much Mike but you know they've got long hair they wear jeans they play guitar they're in a band they're cool and when we were you know when we were teenagers when we were growing up in the sort of mid to late 90s um boys of our age from the area we lived in they all wore tracksuits mm. and they all had like very closely cropped hair and we wore jeans and played guitars listened to rock music and had long hair and i felt like <laughs> oh they're they're, they're us they're, they're like, oh, you know i really felt this kinship with them they were relatable as well in a way that you know courtney cox in scream wasn't because american yeah, horror movies yeah, yeah. of our era were all populated entirely by rich kids who mm. seemed to not only be american but also operate on a different kind of social platform to what we did. So yeah. their lives were kind of glamorized and you could watch them and, uh, well, not aspire to be them because most of them ended up <laughs> yeah. dead. But there wasn't a way to kind of relate to them. Whereas Jodie and Mike and Reggie are very relatable. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just us or know, even though they're in a bank. Sort of, uh, status <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. To. And I think, but you know, they, they have got money because, like we say, mm, Jodie well, owns a bank. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, but it didn't seem like that in the no. film. The fact they had that big house and a housekeeper yeah. always seemed incongruous in the film. Yes, they yeah, didn't you're seem right. Like they should have money, or they didn't seem like. But again, they were is, a different kind yeah. of social sphere. Is it Mike's dream? Well, true. How yeah. much of what we're seeing is real, and like in his idealized world, where <laughs> this sounds crass, but his parents died, but his cool older brother survives, <laughs> who drives a muscle car and plays guitar. Um, did he also inherit? thousands if not millions of dollars mm. how much of that is real just going back to the music a second uh we're recording this in mark's house mm. and i've i've brought lots of gear here with me uh, and i needed an extra bag so purely serendipitously i bought my morningside funeral home and cemetery bag <laughs> with me and it what i just picked it up it was just the first bag to hand and it just so happened to be a phantasm bag and it had just a load of old stuff that i'd shoved in there not again not deliberately and i was emptying out this bag in order to fill it with recording gear to bring here and because i'm a hoarder there were cassette tapes in this bag now i swear to god i've thrown away most of my analog media i promise <laughs> i still have all my phantasm vhs tapes you know from my cold dead hands um and i have about 10 cassette tapes left that i i keep for nostalgic reasons now i found this now the cassette itself is long gone but the case remains. And I don't know why I've got it, because it's something that I 
made for you and gave to you in 1999. Uh, and I apologize to the listeners because I'm about to show Mark something <laughs> that you can't see, but we'll describe it to you. It's a cassette tape that God knows how it ended up in my house and God knows how it ended up in my Morningside bag. But I remember this so well. <laughs> I, you know, even before you'd show me what this was, I knew what you were going to yeah. show me. And I remember this homemade cover and the track listing. And I've no idea how you've ended up no. with this. And I've no idea how I don't have it yeah. anymore. It's a, it's a, I wish... a Phantasm mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with some of your own titles, yeah. I think. Like the first track's called Inauguration of the Mechanical Dwarf. <laughs> um, Phantasm theme... Baby Left Me Blue. So See, I always thought Sitting Here yeah. at Midnight was called Baby Left Me Blue because of this cassette. Yeah, and I've credited it to Reggie Bannister. Oh. The song is written by, uh, um, I was about to call him Jody. His name's not Jody. It's <laughs> Bill Thornbury. He's one of the few Phantasm <laughs> actors who uh, isn't <laughs> named, who doesn't have the same name as his character. Um, yeah, it's funny because you'd think I was exactly the kind of child that would sit and scrutinize the credits. So it's surprising that I didn't know initially that it was called Sitting Here at Midnight. But uh, Bill, I apologize for <laughs> for not crediting you accordingly on a mixtape i made in 1999 oh this is wonderful i i wish i'd kept every cassette you'd ever made me oh um, yeah i know i know there was one i left in edinburgh and i was absolutely gutted there was a cassette player in a place i was staying at uh, with my family when i went on holiday and you made me this tape and i left it in the cassette player oh, in scotland no, that's the worst and this is 21 years ago because i was 15 <laughs> at the time and i wish i could just go back yeah. to that part and oh, to get my. it but to summon this phantasm cassette yeah. where must it be here's another mystery you see we've got an empty <laughs> case with a homemade phantasm cover but no cassette inside. Well, I mentioned the old uh, VCR to VCR pirating system. Mm. My dad also had like a big hi-fi uh, and on the tape deck, it had phono inputs. <sighs> so you could you, you could get a SCART lead. I was about to say for any younger listeners, there are probably no people <laughs> under 40 listening to a podcast about Phantasm, but I hope there are because um, it's timeless and it's beautiful as we've, as we've established. Um, but... Yeah, you could get a, a SCART cable is basically what plugged into the back of a video player to hook it up to your telly before streaming, if you can imagine <laughs> such a thing. Um, and you could get one that had sort of phono outputs as well. So you could basically, you could run audio cables from out the back of your VCR player into a tape deck. So I did, I remember it so well, sitting meticulously for hours. Because this I didn't own the Phantasm soundtrack. This mm. was me, you know, pause and record at certain moments of the film to get snippets oh, yes. of the score and the, the the homemade cover i've made for this cassette that i made for mark it was actually i saw online uh very exciting they'd announced that phantasm was being released on laser disc <laughs> i didn't even know what laser disc was i, uh, I still do know I what print, laser disc I, is. I printed off this sort of black and white pixelated cover of of the laser disc <laughs> box and i've i've scribbled out some bits of it in black marker pen and written soundtrack underneath <laughs> but it's a sphere with a reflection of the tall man surrounded by gravestones in it and it's even got the a very blurry mgm logo at the top oh. i'll post a picture of it it's, it's wonderful I've, you know what this was yours i made this for you so you can have it back i was going to ask i thought <laughs> is it sacrilege no oh. No I actually, I, I mean, I know there's no cassette in here, but I actually do have a cassette player in the shed. And it's one of those I'm, kind of 
ones that was part of a hi-fi system. So if I had the right cassette, I'm going to make that mix for you again. We could I'm going potentially to find, actually record yeah. it direct from the DVDs. I'm, I'm going to do it. It's, it's going to happen. I, I, we probably shouldn't give my address on here because now <laughs> everyone will be wanting to know where the cassette player and the shed are. <laughs> no, they'll be wanting to know where the Russian bootleg is. Surely. <laughs> anyway, that was a, a bit of a digression there, but um, back to things in the in the novelization that that uh, that aren't in the film or clear up things in the film and another when Jody's in the bank he speaks to uh, the security guard called Ralph uh, and he says how come your little brother's allowed to drive without a license <laughs> uh, and Jody says sort of rather flippantly um he says well you know uh, the sheriff knows I'll confiscate his yacht if we put maybe it's not you know what I'm going to check that uh, but basically he implies that the sheriff owes them money <laughs> camper that's it besides the sheriff's af- afraid i'll repossess his camper or his boat or his squad car <laughs> so that again in that sort of a young boy's fancy thing there's this idea that um uh, mike and jody are sort of above the law but i like that fact it gives an explanation as to why this 13 year old boy is 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 racing around in a, in a muscle car and also why they don't they they plan to go to the sheriff at one point but how the police are never really involved in phantasm it's a quite a neat explanation it's good yeah uh, there's more Sally and Susie, although I must admit not as much as I hoped. I, I'd, I'd read, like, obviously, um, I, as I said, next episode, Zowie and I will be talking about phantasm and feminism. We'll be talking about sort of uh, sort of represent female representation or lack thereof mm. in the phantasm films and sort of gender stereotypes and gender roles and what have you. Uh, and I'd read, you know, obviously this is a very male franchise written and directed by a man and, and obviously this novelization is written by a woman and I'd read that um, there was more Sally and Susie in this book and that, and that Kate had fleshed them out a bit more and made them three-dimensional characters. Uh, I think it's safe to say that they are one-dimensional characters in the film itself, but I was slightly disappointed with that aspect. There's not a great deal more Sally and Susie. Um, it establishes the fact that Jodie and Susie are in a relationship or sort mm. of on-again, off-again relationship Uh um, but then I, I think I knew that somehow. Um, but then it troubled me that uh, Jodie was so willing to cheat on her with the lady in Lavender. But even that's explained in the novelization that, um, and in a strange way, it's weirdly sweet. And a lot of people, uh, not me, because I was I was a massive goth growing up, but probably because <laughs> I watched too much Phantasm as a teenager, I was obsessed with 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 graveyards and and whatnot. Um, but a lot of people find the you know what why why is Jodie going out and uh, um, having sex with girls in graveyards? That's creepy and weird. But there is actually a bit in the novelization where Jodie kind of uh, I think Susie's arguing with him like what why do we never uh, well to to be blunt to be crash she's complaining she's never seen him naked so mm. because we always make out in your car uh, we're never at home why do you never bring me home? And I find it actually quite sweet that Jody doesn't want to bring girls home because that's Mike's, you know, that's his safe space. And he, he wants to be that caretaker. He wants to be the, the responsible father figure. Is it because this is Mike's dream? And Mike well, can't yeah. imagine what it's like to bring a girl home or to see his brother naked. Yeah. So in his version of that story, he can't Ooh, let that happen. How interesting. So it has to take place yeah. kind of closeted in the car. Yeah. And everything has to be literally under wraps a little bit. That's really interesting, yeah. Um, and but yeah, back to the novel. There's this frustration from Susie. You know, we never go any proper dates. You know, you never bring me home. If you don't 
take me out i'll go out with what he's, he's got a silly name like billy wilkerson or something <laughs> i can't remember the guy's name um i, I picture him i think it describes him as being kind of a, a big lad and i picture <laughs> sam from lord of the rings <laughs> like a nice wholesome oh, guy who's not cool um, like jody but... what, what's the character that, that samwise plays in stranger things bob bob yeah, yeah bob <laughs> she's gonna go with maybe bob, bobby wilkerson isn't it it is bobby wilkerson yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh imagine you know sean astin we need some time travel but sean astin <laughs> as bobby wilkerson in the phantasm scene that never was jody's love rival cinema's loss <laughs> um but yeah so he he actually jody decides to go and take out Susie uh and treat her right but he gets there and she's already gone he's missed mm. the boat she's gone off with bobby wilkerson so he's in a mood so that's why he's at the bar and ends up being seduced by the lady in lavender so yeah it makes sense it makes sense uh and and another thing that i, I liked in the novelization uh was that, that there's there's a throwaway line well i say throwaway not really there, there's a line in the film where jody says to the friend when mike's uh under the car fixing the alternator or whatever it is um that uh i'm thinking of sending him off to live with his aunt mm. and a lot of people are, are quick to say what a bastard jody is because of that but again i've always wondered how much of it is mike's paranoia he, he's under a car and jody's talking to this friend is he assuming that's what he's mm. saying i don't know maybe i'm giving jody the benefit of the doubt uh, but the aunt's never really mentioned, but she is mentioned quite prominently yeah. in the book. And Mike goes to see her. And the the weird thing she did she have a son who died, Patso, or is he away in the army or something? I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, it was. Oh, you're getting to be as big as Patso mm. now. You get uh, a little description of her. Aunt Belle was an attractive little woman who put blonde coloring on her hair to hide the grey and denied she did it. She dressed in a pink cotton dress and had tied a pink chiffon scarf at her neck to hide the wrinkles. And I discovered something about Aunt Belle only very recently. Uh, now, you know, uh, and anyone who's listened to A Book at Breakfast will know that I'm fascinated by the concept of the triple goddess. Mm. Uh, and I was chatting to Zowie the other day. We were talking about Phantasm and we were talking about... <laughs> That's all you're talking about. I know, I know. No, I like other things as well. I like uh, Phantasm Russian novelizations, completely <laughs> different thing. Uh, I like Phantasm mixtapes. Uh, I like drinking Doseki beer. Mm. You know, <laughs> lots of varied interests here. I also enjoy the music of Bill Thornbury. Have you have you heard of him? <laughs> no, I no. haven't. No, I've only, I I only really like Reggie Bannister. <laughs> <laughs> um, where was I? Uh, we were talking about uh, our favourite character, the fortune teller, and how mm. intriguing and mysterious she is. But, but I said, but it, it, what intrigues me is I said. The fortune teller is the archetypal crone and her granddaughter, Sarah. That's another thing we know from the novelization. The granddaughter's, the fortune teller's granddaughter's name is Sarah. Mm. Um, oh, and even the fortune teller has a name. She's Mrs. Star. Mm. Which, uh, personally, I prefer the mystery of her just being the fortune teller. <laughs> but anyway, um, I said that you've got the crone and you've got the maiden. But where's the mother in that? I feel that there, there's another element to to the you know i i strongly feel that they're two um embodiments of, of of the triple goddess entity is that you know there's that witchy vibe in the fortune teller's cottage um i say cottage because i've got witches on the brain it's not really a cottage but you know and uh i found out just the other day that, that there were scenes with aunt bell shot oh right and 
see if you can guess which actress played Aunt Belle. This woman with grey hair who dyes it blonde. Was it Mary Ellen Shaw? It was. Oh, my God. The fortune teller herself. Now, of course, we know like mm. Don likes to recycle players, as they call them in the credits. I love that. The, that's very romantic. I like that. And Mary Ellen Shaw was in Kenny and Company, as was Reggie Bannister and Michael Baldwin and uh, Doug, the bartender. Um, and even the caretaker was the coach in Kenny and Company. So I don't know how much we can literally read into it. it literally read into this but i love the idea that maybe the fortune teller and the ant are the same person mm. and also and again that in, in the novel it makes me think of in boneland with the exactly the therapist yeah um, and susan potentially being the same person and the morrigan yes i mentioned this in my uh, discussion with kevin lyons mm. in episode three uh, a novel that mark and i discussed on a book at breakfast called boneland which has this very sort of phantasm-esque quality in terms of not quite knowing what's a dream and what's real mm. and how much of it is in the protagonist's head um yeah and um, you know maybe it's just me as ever reading too much into it but i i really like that little bit of trivia and and, and again it's something that zowie and i will talk about in in the next episode that idea that um you know there aren't many female characters in phantasm but you get this brilliant fortune teller and this idea that there's this kind of unspoken communication between the fortune teller and sarah and that they know things that mike doesn't know and in the scene in the book with Aunt Belle, she knows things that Mike doesn't know. Mm. And it's quite tragic, you know. Um, I, I said that in the film, I like to think that um, Mike might be imagining the fact that Jodie is, is is shipping him off to live with his aunt. But it's confirmed here. Uh, she says, I'll fix up Patso's old room for you. My, it will be so nice to have a man in the house after all these years of being alone. What, what did you say? He barely managed to utter the words, for his heart was so still, it felt as though it may never start again. I said I'd fix it up. She stopped and continued. Didn't Jody tell you? And her head began shaking in exasperation. He promised me he would. No, he didn't tell me anything. Why, that boy, he's so irresponsible. You'll be better off when he's gone. She continued to tidy the table. Gone? Where's he going? Getting carried away with her mopping, Aunt Belle now had one of Mike's hands and was wiping it with a dish rag. Heaven knows. He just came in here the other day and said he'd be leaving soon and asked me if it would be all right if you came to stay with me. It's so sad that he finds out that way. But again, like, Aunt Belle has that in common with the fortune teller. She knows things that he doesn't know. Uh, and Kate Coscarelli knows things that we don't know mm. or didn't know about Phantasm. And again, just to reiterate, that was the real thrill of finally getting hold of this holy grail book holy of holies holy of holies yeah um and that idea that it was as close as i could get to seeing like a phantasm screenplay or a morningside Mm. screenplay that was the original working title i've mentioned elsewhere on the podcast um about finally getting to see phantasm on the big screen uh i had the good fortune to accompany you i know it was um it was so last minute, I remember sort of ringing you in a panic. And, oh, London, Don Coscarelli, Phantasm, ah! <laughs> and yeah, you, thankfully, you didn't think I was completely mad. And <laughs> we, we got, uh, got some cheap train tickets 
stayed at a very interesting hotel on the outskirts of London. Yeah, I think that hotel was a, a casualty of the pandemic. The, it is the with us plague. no more. No. It, the tall yeah. man has come to take yeah. it to the hotel <laughs> mausoleum. He's crushed it down. <laughs> it's a, a tiny, tiny hotel. <laughs> tiny little B&B. It's a tent now. <laughs> um, but yeah, at that screening, Dom was there. It was amazing. He was sat behind us as we were watching Phantasm in the dark. It was perfect. A more perfect evening could not have been had. Uh, and there was a little Q&A at the end. Mm. And I don't know if you remembered, I sort of eagerly asked Don about the novelization. I said, I read these sample chapters in 2002 yeah, and I, I have to know what happens next. And I said, are there any plans to reprint the novelization? And he was, it was, it was really sweet, actually. He said, no, but he said, um, I'm really glad you brought that up because mm. writing was always my mother's passion, but she'd never been able to dedicate herself to it and then phantasm gave her the opportunity to write this novelization which kind of you know it's launched her her career and i think she was you know she's probably in her 50s by that point it really was a kind of you know uh, in, in that new stage of her life taking on this completely different direction and being really successful with it so i think you know he seemed really really pleased that i'd asked about it and quite quite touched although he did say that there were no plans to re-release it in print or digitally so i'd say if you can get a hold of this if you can get hold of a copy of this book it's definitely one for the diehard fans i wouldn't recommend it to the casual reader <laughs> unless they're a fan of garth Marenghi. um and it, it is hard to get hold of. I say there are only 500 in existence, but it's, it's a gorgeous, it's a tiny, tiny book. As I say, it's printed deliberately in the style of the sort of pulp 70s uh, paperback novelizations. Uh, and it has uh, black and white stills from the movie throughout the book. And it is just, it's a wonderful, wonderful little thing. Uh, but if you can't get the book, get yourself a copy of the Russian bootleg. Mm. That's not hard to get hold of either, but it tends to go for... <laughs> it's slightly more affordable if you can find <laughs> one than the um, <laughs> than the 2002 English version. And I'm... Well, I'm really intrigued by... I didn't get round uh, to translating uh, any of book two, or Phantasm 2. Mm. I really want to know who translated that and who wrote it in yeah. the first place? But it's quite a chore. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Trying to scan every page and translate it. You know what? It might be easier for me to just learn Russian. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, when all's said and done, there is no substitute for the film. So, Mark, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to discuss the novelization and the film itself with me. I'm so glad... Um, not only that we were able to share that film together, but that we both got to watch it at 13. Yeah, me too. It is the definitive age to be discovering horror movies, I think, as you've alluded to before. But And I don't know if you remember, talking of my um, bootleg mixtape, I did actually make you a copy of, of Phantasm on VHS. Yes. Uh, and it was <laughs> much like this novelization. Uh, I I did I gave you a VHS with Phantasm one and two back to back on oh. it, literally back to back. Because I don't know if you remember, uh, I was a bit of a wizard with the with the pause button in those days. <laughs> and when I'm recording from one VCR to another, uh, the exact moment where Mike sees the tall man in the mirror at the end of the film, boy, I switched it for, for the recap at the start of Phantasm two. So Phantasm 1 didn't end and it literally went straight into the second film. Oh, which I, wish in, I still had that. Yeah, you probably do somewhere. Mm. 
in an old drawer, uh, which in hindsight is a terrible idea because you don't. <laughs> it's like the Doctor Who abridged <laughs> episodes where you don't get the cliffhangers. <laughs> yeah, um, but I was very proud of it at the time. Aww. Seamless it was. But the thing I'm still proud of in hindsight, there, there was a great image. Again, I just printed it off. Um, I think it was bloody disgusting. Uh, there was an article there about Phantasm 1999, <laughs> this exciting sequel uh, penned by um, Roger Avery. But we'll talk more about that later in the podcast. Um, and there was a great promotional image. I think it was actually from Phantasm 3. It was the sort of three-pronged gold sphere with the tall man's silhouette uh, in in reflected in in the ball and it just said phantasm above it in that gorgeous sort of arched psychedelic font and i printed it off in a way you know some uh vhs covers uh were landscape mm. rather than portrait I had a great x rental terminator yeah. 2 with a landscape cover and i printed it and slid it into this vhs uh case in such a way that it said phantasm on the spine of the video yes, but if you I tilted it that. you had this gold sphere with the tall man oh, in okay. my greatest creative achievement to this day <laughs> i think but anyway um before i let you go you've been listening to the podcast you know it is customary i'm afraid for me to ask you a random question from killian h gore's um unauthorized phantasm quiz book what is the type of car owned by jody a well, plymouth Sorry. Oh, it's multiple choice. Don't <laughs> okay, worry. Okay, okay. A, a Plymouth Barracuda. B, an Oldsmobile Delta. C, a Plymouth Fury. Or D, a Chevy Nova. I think it's a Plymouth Barracuda. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's a, that's an easy one because it, the, the car is, is almost synonymous with the films but mm. you know i'm not into the uh, i'm not as into the cars as as many viewers and i thought that you you're probably not either and i thought you know what he might have slipped his mind but no no you were you were on the ball I, unless you give me the multiple choice i wouldn't have known it was a plymouth barracuda so. i think i only know that from uh from documentaries and things i think mm. they just call it the cuda, the cuda um yeah. i didn't understand that for years that there's a line in um in oblivion where Reggie says, I've got the Cuda stashed a mile away, meaning that the car is hidden nearby. And I, I didn't know what a Cuda stashed mean. I <laughs> meant... thought, I, I knew that it was stashed, but I thought it was like a weapon stash. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, in, in, in uh, the first Phantasm, when Mike rescues Jody from Morningside, uh, but he can't tell who's in the car at first, and Mike says, goddamn door latch, as in that the door had jammed. And I used to think he was saying, get in, coolatch. <laughs> I thought, like, coolatch, like, get in, daddy-o. I don't know. <laughs> right, what a note to end it in. Anyway, mm. right, get out, coolatch. So there you have it. That was our conversation on Phantasm by Kate Coscarelli for my Phantasm podcast, Morningside FM. And if you've discovered this episode because you're a Phantasm fan, don't forget uh, to go and subscribe to Morningside FM for even more Phantasm stuff. Too much Phantasm stuff, <laughs> some people might say, but they would be unkind people. Sorry, that's another Garth Marenghi reference. Uh, and if you have discovered this because you're a Phantasm fan, stick around. Uh, because next month we will be discussing Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. We'll see you then. <laughs>